Obviously, the word revival means something to each one of us that might be a little different. To some of you, to hear the word revival is to conjure up uh, memories of two-week outdoor uh, revival services in the summertime, usually the first two weeks in August, sometime under a tabernacle or a brush arbor. To say the word revival is to remind some of you of a person so that when you hear that word, you think of a person, maybe some evangelist whose message and life made a tremendous impact on you. Many of you became a Christian in a revival meeting. On a recent Wednesday night, I asked for a show of hands how many people became a Christian, how many people came to know the Lord in a revival meeting. And over half the people who were here lifted their hand to indicate that it was in a revival meeting that they first found Christ in salvation's experience. The word revival has a negative connotation to some people in some places. If you go to some place today outside the Southern Bible Belt and you wanted to preach a series of services and you called it revival, it would be to plant the kiss of death on what you were trying to do that week. And so we have kind of avoided the use of the word some because of its negative connotation. In trying to find an answer to the question, what is revival? I have chosen to quote um, freely from some authorities who have written on the subject. Would you listen to their definition? William Sprague says, wherever you see religion rising from a state of comparative depression to a tone of increased vigor and strength, Wherever you see professing Christians becoming more faithful to their obligations and behold the strength of the church increased by fresh ascensions of piety from the world, there is a state of things which you need not hesitate to denominate a revival of religion. Charles Finney defines revival as nothing else than a new beginning of obedience to God. Just as in the case of a converted sinner, the first step is a deep repentance, a breaking down of heart, a getting down into the dust before God with deep humility and a forsaking of sin. G. Campbell Morgan puts it this way, it is the reviving of humanity, strictly speaking, to the sins of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to reanimate the life of the believer. It is God manifesting Himself through human life. And Arthur Wallace in his book entitled In the Day of Thy Power writes, Revival is God revealing Himself to man in awful holiness and irresistible power. It is such a manifest working of God that human personalities are overshadowed and human programs are abandoned. It is man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. It is the Lord making bare His holy arm and working in extraordinary power on saint and sinner alike. And so I guess you could say that that revival is that strange and sovereign work of God where He visits His people in supernatural power 
to reanimate and release them into the fullness of His blessing. And always this kind of thing will issue in conversion of the lost. But first of all, it is God's work among His people. Now a careful study of the history of revivals and in, in history and in the Bible reveals that there are some components that are basic to every revival without exception. There are, there are, they are a, an appropriateness for revival, some attendance to revival, and some achievements of revival without exception. That is to say, in every revival that's ever happened at any time in history or in the Bible, there always have been circumstances that demand revival. And there are conditions that allow revival. And there are some characteristics that attend that revival or reveal that revival has come. I want you to look at some of these with me this morning. First of all, there, was, there is an appropriateness of revival. That is, there is a need that cries out for revival in every situation. In our text, the need for revival is found in the context. For example, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 7, there is the need of revival because of spiritual confusion. Spiritual confusion. For the priest's sons of Eli had perverted the law of God and they had taken upon themselves to change the sacrificial system to suit, their, to suit themselves. These men of God who were to be representatives of the law and who were to stand for the law and to interpret the will of God to people had become originators of a law to themselves. The law of God said that when the, when the worshiper came with his sacrifice, he was to leave that sacrifice at the altar to be consumed. Sometimes it was placed in a boiling cauldron. And then the priest were to come with a three-pronged fork and they were to thrust the fork down into the boiling cauldron and the meat they speared with the fork they kept for themselves. It was a part of their compensation. And because there were hundreds of sacrifices being brought daily, their compensation was extreme and luxurious. But these indulgent and worldly men were not satisfied to do it God's way. They were not content to be satisfied doing it according to God's law. They took it on themselves to change the system and they disdained the law of God and they demanded that the worshipers bring the sacrifices to them and they took the meat even before they were sacrificed. And verse 7 says that the men despised the sacrifice of God. What men? The men who were bringing them. Now follow me. These people outside the religious community, the leaders of, of, of God, the men of God who are bringing their sacrifices, lost their respect for the people of God because they saw their disdain and their rejection of the law of God. And consequently, they lost their respect for God Himself and His way. 
And they watched while these people who were these men who were to be representatives of God, who were to stand for Him and to proclaim Him and to represent Him, they watched as these men did a number on them out in the world. And they said, in essence, if this is the way God's people act, and if this is the way God's people think, and if this is the motivation of their life, I want no part of it. That has been the tragedy of modern Christianity. It's what Paul was talking about when he said to the Jews, the name of God has been blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Revival is needed when our practice is not identical with our profession. When what we say inside the church is different from what we do when we're outside the church. When what we do on Monday does not jibe with what we say on Sunday. When there is no clear, concise witness to the law and the will and the purpose of God in the life of the people who are to represent Him in the world, then there is a crying need for revival, spiritual confusion. It was a time of perverted perception. Chapter 3, verse 1 translates like this, And the Word of God was rare in these days, and there was no frequent vision. God refused to speak. God would not speak His Word through the unclean lips of Hophni and Phinehas, these corrupt priests. God was silent. Now God had said, and through the, the history up to this time, that as long as His people were obedient and responsive and receptive, then He would always have a message for them and they would always have a messenger. For man cannot live by bread alone. But because of the wickedness that had, that had prevailed in the time among God's people, God refused to speak. What could be worse? What could be worse than to be without some word from God? To come to a crisis in life and to look for some guidance and find none. To find some comfort and find none. To look for some help and find none. God had nothing more to say. Now I want you to turn and look at that passage I reminded you of in Amos chapter 8. I want everybody to look at that. Don't punch your wife and say, Honey, you turn. I want you to mark that passage of Scripture. Amos chapter 8, beginning at verse 11. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather a hear, for hearing the words of the Lord. And the people will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. A famine of the word. No message comes from the unseen that a man hears and recognizes and believes in. 
no voice speaks to the deep of man in the hour of his greatest need. And no authority lays its command upon the life. God has nothing else to say. He's silent. Revival is needed when there's a famine in the land. When you pray and no voice returns from the unseen except the echo of your own wailing cry. And you open up the Bible and you read it, but it says nothing to you. It's a closed book. It's nothing but paper and print and, and words. And you come to church and you hear all kinds of sermons. You hear sermons every, every day, sometimes twice a day, but no message reaches down inside of you and moves you. There's a famine of the Word. I tell you, fear that more than an invasion of armies. Fear that more than the nuclear holocaust. Fear that more than an economic crisis. That God gets to the place where He has nothing left to say. When the Word of God fails, morning is overcast, and noon is a tempest, and night is starless. Oh, the terror of it. And when a nation gets to the place where God refuses to speak, then that presages that nation's destruction and its doom and its disintegration. You show me a nation whose men and women do not hear the voice, do not see the vision, do not feel the touch of God, and I'll show you a nation that's marching to its ruin in spite of all of its banners and boastings. They lost their vision. God had nothing to say. Does that sound like anybody you know? Revival is needed in your life and in mine when we come to the place where there is no relationship, there is no contact with Him. It was a time of perverted perception. It was a time of religious destitution. 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 2 says that they lamented after the Lord. There's no way that words can describe the pathos of that, that, that statement. I wish I, could, I wish I were an artist. I wish I had an oil, some oils and a canvas. I'd like to paint the picture. It's the picture of someone wailing and weeping in contrition and repentance and regret and remorse. But it's too late. The die has been cast. The door has been shut. The opportunity is past. And there is this weeping and lamenting after the Lord, but it's too late. One day my phone rang at the office and a man identified himself. He said, I've not met you, but I need help. Would you come to my house? And I did. When I got there, he was sobbing and crying and we could hardly even talk, so I had to let him kind of compose himself before we could even finish our conversation. And he told me, he said, look around you, my wife has left me. He said, for years I neglected her and I took her for granted. And he said, I, was, I betrayed her love and I was disloyal to her, to my commitment to her. And she begged me time and time again 
let's get some help, let's get a counselor, let's find some help. And I neglected and I ignored her. And he said, yesterday she walked out and left. And he lamented. I went over to Wichita Falls to find her. He told me where I could find her. I went to her, to the house where she was staying with a friend. The friend came, went back and brought her to the door. I visited for a moment outside. She said, it's his own fault. For years I begged him. For years I asked him to return to me. I asked him to get some help. But over and over again he refused and he rejected me and neglected me and ignored me and he finally destroyed every feeling I had for him. And she said, you go back and tell him that it's too late. There's something of this attitude in the book of Hebrews as the author tells about Esau selling his birthright and he says that he sold his birthright for one single meal and then he sought again the blessing of God, but he could find no place for repentance even though he sought it with tears. It's too late. And so they neglected the house of prayer and they despised the altar of God and they disdained the law of God. And so finally God got enough of it and he sent the Babylonians into Jerusalem to level it. And he put chains on their hands and drove them out into the wilderness. And all the way out to Babylon, they lamented that they had turned from God. But it was too late. I wonder this morning, without trying to be the prophet of doom or the son of a prophet, how long will God tarry with us before he brings judgment upon us? And Edna St. Vincent Millay caught the spirit of that. And she said, man has never been the same since God died. Why, you'd think it only happened yesterday the way he takes it. It's not that he talks so much, but he laughs louder than he used to. And he can't stand to be alone and he won't be still for a minute. Oh, he does pretty well as long as it's daytime for he works very hard and he amuses himself hard with all the clever amusements of this cunning age, but it's of no use for every time it gets dark when it starts to get night, he goes out and howls over the grave of God. It was a time of lamenting. When do we need revival? We need revival when there isn't a consistent witness among God's people and there's confusion. I'm told that God's people live this way, but I don't see that. I'm confused. I'm told that God's will is perfect, but I don't see God's people living out His will, and I'm confused. It's a time of perverted perception. God doesn't speak, and I pray, and no answer comes. That's when we need revival. We need revival just before we wear out the patience of God. As Billy Graham said, God doesn't judge America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now what are the attendants to revival? The scripture clearly defines the conditions that lead to revival. In the text I have read, beginning at verse 3, they are outlined there. Number one, 
We are to return to the Lord with our whole heart. Now, to return to the Lord with your heart indicates that you have left the Lord with your heart. If he tells us to return to the Lord with our whole heart, it means that we have left him with our heart. Now, we may still be here. We may be just as active and just as as busy as we've always been, but our heart's not in it. We may, just, we may be just as faithful to the things that we're supposed to do. Uh, our busyness may, just, may be just the same, but there's no joy in it. Our heart's not. We've left our first love. Our bodies are there, but our hearts are not. Our joy is not. Our enthusiasm is not. Our affection is not. Our body is, but our heart is not. Return to the Lord with your heart. Do like the prodigal son in the far country. I'm going to get up from here and I'm going home to the Father. I'm going back. I'm going home. I've wandered away, far away from God. Lord, I'm coming home. The paths of sin too, Lord, too long I've trod. Lord, I'm coming home, coming home, coming home. Never more to roam. Open wide thine arms of love. Lord, I'm coming home. Come back to the God who espoused you. Ian McLaren tells about Lachlan Campbell. Latchelon Campbell was a Pharisee, a religious man, but his religion was strictly by the law, the letter of the law. He had a daughter named Flora. Latchelon Campbell's wife died. Flora's mother died. She loved her daddy and he loved her, but because he was so strict and so narrow and so pharisaical, she ran away from home. Word began to sift back that she was involved in a life of sin in the far country. So one day, Latchlan Campbell took the old Bible from the shelf and he scratched out her name from the family page. And on Sunday morning, he got in church and he stood and asked that the church withdraw her name from the fellowship of the church, but they refused to do so. The next morning, a saintly old woman by the name of Margie Howell went to Latchland's house and she told him the story of the prodigal son, how the father was standing out on the way when the son returned. And as she talked, his heart was touched and he agreed that, he, that she could write Flora. And so she did. She wrote, Flora, why don't you come home your old dad's a-grieving for you. Come home for your sake, for your father's sake, for the good Lord's sake. When Flora got the letter, she was sick of body and heart, and so she came home, and her father was up. The next day, Margie, Cam Margie Howe went by Latchland Campbell's house, saw the old Bible, saw this, read this on the family page. Flora Campbell she went away in May and she came home in December and her father ran and fell upon her neck and kissed her. In my father's house are many rooms 
And I tell you, He's waiting up for you. Return to the Lord with your whole heart. And it involves a second thing. It involves removing the strange gods from among you. That's what the text says. In the New American Standard translation, it is remove the foreign gods from among you. Now, a god is something that a man organizes his life around. It is something he builds the strategy of his life around. It's where he places his energy and his affection. It's where he worships. Every man has a god, something or someone around which he has organized his life and devotes his energies and his devotion. It's not strange that you have a God. Everybody has a God. But the gods you have are strange, Solomon said. Israel, these are strange gods. This is not the God who delivered you out of Egyptian bondage. This is not the God who saved you. This is not the God who rescued you from a bondage worse than death and brought you into a land of promise. This is not the God who has blessed you with all kinds of blessings. This God you worship and you serve has no eyes. He cannot see your plight. He has no ears. He cannot hear your cry. He has no heart. He cannot feel your pain. He has no hand. He has no hands. He cannot lift you out of your misery. These are strange gods. Where are your gods this morning? And who are they? Around what God have you organized your life? Is it the God who saved you? Is it the God who has rescued you from a bondage worse than death? Is it the God who has added to your life every spiritual blessing in heavenly places? Put away these strange gods that are among you. I tell you, revival shall not come to any church or any town until we put away the gods that are among us. For you cannot serve God and mammon. Real religion is like real love. It's exclusive. It has as its very nature, it is as it, in its very nature indivisible. To offer it to two is to be rejected by neither to be accepted by neither. The hand that would clasp and be upheld by the clasp must be emptied of trifles. So the question comes this morning, that searching question, what about the gods that you worship and serve? Do you want revival? Do you want revival to come to Durant, Oklahoma, and to this part of the world? Do you want that revival to come to your own heart where you're reanimated and released into the fullness of God's blessing? Then return to, the, to God with your whole heart and remove the strange gods that are in your life. That's a good place to stop start again tonight. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are aware, we believe 
that there is need not only for revival in our nation, in our world, in our community, but there is need for renewal in our own hearts. There is such inconsistency in the way we live. There is such deadness in our prayer life. The Word of God doesn't speak when we open it, when we read it. And Lord, we lament, we lament that we have neglected the place of prayer and we have despised the altar and we have disdained the law. And so we come this morning to return to the God who saved us with our whole heart. And we come to put away from among us strange gods that we worship. And we get down in the dust before you, Father. And we pray for your forgiveness. And we ask for your healing. And we pray for your renewing. In Jesus' name. Now these are our invitations this morning. The first invitation for you to come to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. God sent His Son to save you from your sin. He purchased for you heaven and offers it to you as a free gift. Would you come giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ? We want you to be saved today. We want you to claim the gift of eternal life. We've been praying that you'll be saved. Second invitation is for you to come this morning to say, I come to put away the gods of my life. I come back to the God who saved me with my whole heart. I want to rededicate myself to Him. The third invitation is for you to come and place your life here. Join our church. We need you. We want you to come. While the choir sings our hymn of invitation, we invite you to step right out and come on the first stanza, on the first word. Right now, you do it.